Well, good morning. It is always good to be with you. We are, after a one-week break, for us to to celebrate with our graduating seniors and their families. We're we're back into this uh, study series that we have been dedicating ourselves to for the last month or so that we're calling A Beginner's Guide to Church. And, And it's just, it's our attempt as a church family to understand the, the wisdom, the Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom of the Apostle Paul as, he, as he's trying to help a church in the ancient city of Corinth navigate their, their new lives in Christ. We, we talked about the fact that, you know, even though some of us in this room may have had years of experience under our belts in terms of, of following Jesus and trying to, to grow more and more into the image of Christ— All of us, in one way or another, we have parts of our lives, parts of our souls that haven't yet been changed. They haven't been transformed enough into the image of Christ. And so in some ways, even if we're really experienced church members, we're beginners. Uh, And we want to have that spirit of humility, that spirit that's always hoping to learn more and experience more than we have already. And, And as we approach the the places in this letter where Paul has moved beyond kind of the, the deeper matters of, of theology, the, the foundation of what it means to be people who follow Jesus, he's starting to get into all of these very specific practical matters. And, and we talked about the fact that, you know, in, in Paul's view of church, there are, there are personal things in your life. There are public aspects of your life. But, but there isn't this... This idea of things being so private that we're not allowed to talk about it at church. And this isn't just something that's true for Paul, it's true for Jesus as well. There's there's two topics that I think we tend to keep as private as possible. One is money and what we do with it, and the other is sex. And we would just rather not talk about those things. Jesus won't let us do that. Paul won't let us do that, because while it is incredibly personal. It's something that, that we need to be confident enough as God's people to say, look, every aspect of our lives is a part of what makes us disciples. And if every aspect of our lives is part of what makes us disciples, we need to be sharing together the, the lived wisdom uh, that we have encountered. And we're not, we don't just keep it to ourselves. Now, before we, we open up to 1 Corinthians 7 together, I, I, I want to say something, and, and this is, I'm not just stalling before I have to start talking about sex. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Uh, no. Here's the thing. I, throughout the rest of this study, there's going to be something that I think is a point of tension. Uh, and it's, it's not your imagination that we are increasingly in a world where Christianity's relationship, especially within our nation, uh, to power and access to power to shape things, it is radically diminished. Uh, in some of our lifetimes, it's, it's become something that we can actually, we can trace it. And when, you, when you've had access to power to shape world events and you start to lose that access to power, there's an anxiety that creeps in. And you start to feel like you might be willing to do just about anything to hold on to the power you have left or maybe get a little bit more back. Uh, and, and connected to this 
this anxiety about a changing world is I think how we start to approach church and what we're expecting when we come here. And let me just be really direct, what you're expecting from me when I preach. Uh, and, and here's my theory. I'm annoying all of you equally, but in different ways. And what I want you to know is I'm actually doing it on purpose. Right? Because I'm trying to be honest with my own spiritual journey, and I'm also trying to be honest about the fact that we don't all come here expecting to get the same thing, and I can't possibly be all things to all people in a single sermon. I can't say all the important things that I need to say, so we're all going to leave a little bit disappointed every single Sunday, right? Specifically with the sermon, Because I think some of us come expecting a sermon to be something, we have this deep desire for certainty in an uncertain world. And then I think there's other people in this room that have a growing distrust of that kind of certainty. And we're all going to church together. Now, we may not like all going to church together, but we're all going to church together. And... And I, I've, I've felt this myself at times. I'll, I'll be listening to someone preach, and I'll think, would you just, just lay it out and make it clear and, and, and set up all the categories for me so I don't have to wrestle with it. In fact, at the end of the sermon, I'd like you to tell me specifically how I should apply your sermon this week in my life. I don't want to have to wrestle with the sermon after it's over. I just want to think about lunch after it's over. Just lay it out. Help me have a sense that in a chaotic world, at least when I'm at church, everything makes absolute sense. And yet, we also have people in this room who are really nervous anytime somebody in a position of authority, and by the way, to the same degree that the church's authority is kind of diminishing in the culture, preacher's authority has been, they've been diminished, it's been, I mean, you, you can take or leave anything I say. You feel free to do that. I understand that. I feel free to do that when I'm listening to sermons. That's not how I felt when I was growing up in the Church of Christ. I felt like if the pre, who happened to be my dad, said, this is what you do, then you said, okay, he's the preacher. He told me that's what I do. Okay, here's what I'm trying to say. I want to be honest. When I feel certain about something, I'll tell you. I will say the older I get, that list is getting shorter and shorter. And I want to be able to say to those of you who are anxious or you have some distrust about people who point out a a complicated world and say, oh, no, 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 it's just simple. And you think, "Uh, I'm not sure it's that simple. I'm not sure you've thought about it, all the the different outcomes and all the different people and and how they struggle with this. I think think maybe it's a little messier than you're, you're letting on. When you have that suspicion i got to tell you, I'm going to say some things this morning about God and about God's design for us as sexual beings where I'm going to say some things that I'm pretty sure about, and I'm going to tell you I'm pretty sure about it, and there may be some of you that think, I wish you'd be even more sure about it. And then there's going to be some of you that think, "Mm, I'm not sure that you should be that sure. You're following me right here? Okay, it's meandering. I get it. This is true anytime we open up scripture. It's especially true in 1 Corinthians 7 because Paul is trying his hardest to talk about something that's messy and complex within this ancient congregation of probably 30 to 40 people. 
it's really important for you to remember that as we read this because he's not, pre- he's not preaching this sermon in this letter to, you know, to several hundred people at once. I think he has specific people in mind where they're coming from, what they're wrestling with when it comes to their sexual lives, and he's speaking to every conceivable situation he can when he gets into 1 Corinthians 7. And, and he's like, he's trying to, to account for every single possible question they might have, and he gets to the point where he's trying so hard to answer every single question that he, he's just tying himself up in knots. I mean, he's almost going in circles. I'm saying, open up your, your Bible app or your Bible. The First Corinthians 7, we, we're not going to read the entire chapter. We're, we're going to read the last handful of verses of it. I want you to look at how much Paul's trying to balance a word from the Lord when it comes to, to certain aspects of human sexuality. And then he starts saying, you know what? You guys have so many complicated lives that you're bringing to the table. On this thing, I'm pretty cl- I'm clear. I have a word from the Lord. But over here on this other thing, I'm just going to give it my best shot. Now, here's what I want you to to hold in your mind. When Paul says, I have a word from the Lord, that's in Scripture. But what do we do with the fact that when he says, I don't have a word from the Lord, that's also in Scripture? I mean, it doesn't mean it's a verse you can just ignore, right? Like, Like, part of what's going on here is that 1 Corinthians 7, it's... It's Paul's process of trying to handle unique situations, and he's having to, he's having to take a Holy Spirit-inspired guess. And his Holy Spirit-inspired guess, that whole process is a part of Scripture because it's what Paul expects, it's what God expects the church to be brave enough to try to do in a messy, chaotic complex world where we don't just have predetermined black and white answers and we say that's how if you don't fit in any of these categories we don't have anything to say to you no just like Paul as a community we wrestle with this stuff so that we can find a way to reach people where they are if that's in scripture then part of what scripture is trying to tell us is God's not interested in always giving in to our desire for certainty and if you approach Scripture thinking that's what this is, this is an answer book, and all the answers you're ever going to need content-wise are in this book, and you don't pay attention to the Holy Spirit-inspired, described process of how we don't just find answers in the Bible, but we reach new answers together, then you're missing a core teaching of, of Scripture. That, that Scripture itself anticip- anticipates us moving beyond Using it as a reference guide. That, that it's training wheels. Where we're trying to develop an instinct. When we, we encounter a situation we've never seen before, we still know how to respond like Jesus would. Even if we don't have a book, chapter, and verse. Okay, so say all that. Now, I'm going to quickly tell you what Paul basically does in the, this whole chapter, and then I'll read the last few verses. Because you're going to hear that same push and pull and the tension that he's wrestling with. He says, look, I just wish we lived in a world where nobody wanted sex. Okay, Paul. And he says, but we're not living in that world. I wish all of you could just be like me. I'm single and I'm not interested in sex and it would make things a lot easier for all of us. Okay. And he goes, but, you know, if, if you 
if you can't control yourself sexually and you're in a relationship with somebody uh, and you love each other and you want to commit to each other, then go ahead and, and get married and then then you're going to have this, this sexual relationship. And again, I wouldn't advise it. And, and marriage is hard, by the way, and people go through really hard times when they get married. And I'd rather spare you from the difficulty of marriage. But if you're bound and determined to get married, go ahead and do it. You know, if you're married to a, uh, an unbeliever and they leave, you just let them go. You're not bound. If you're married to a believer, you need to try your best to hold on to one another no matter what. And, and, but, but then if somebody dies, then I, I don't think you should get married. But, but, but if you want to get married, you can get married. And, and God told me that, that people need to be like this with one another in covenant. But this, I'm just telling you, my, my sense is, are you getting dizzy yet? This is all in 1 Corinthians 7. So let's read the last few verses together. So verse 36, if someone thinks he's acting inappropriately toward an unmarried woman whom he knows, and if he has strong feelings and it seems like the right thing to do, that's not precise enough for me, right? It seems like the right thing to do. I'm pretty sure nobody's ever proposed with that as a key line, right? It seems like the right thing to do. He should do what he wants. He's not sinning, he's just making a mistake. That's what Paul is basically saying. He's not sinning, they should get married. But if a man stands firm in his decision and doesn't feel the pressure, but has his own will under control, he does right if he decides in his own heart not to marry the woman. Therefore, the one who marries the unmarried woman does right. Now this is weird, because I tend to want to think right and wrong. He says he does right, but... Uh, the one who doesn't get married, what? Does writer. I know that's not good grammar. That's a problem for me. I like things to be clear. Does better. A woman is obligated to stay in her marriage as long as her husband's alive, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry whomever she wants. Only it should be a believer in the Lord. But in my opinion, she will be happier if she stays the way she is. And I think... I'm pretty sure, no, I'm, I'm pretty, yeah, I have the Lord's Spirit on this, right? The Holy Spirit's guiding me. Now, I want us to think about this tension, right? This idea where he says, I don't have a command from the Lord, but I'll give you my, my opinion as someone you can trust because of the Lord's mercy. He says this in 1 Corinthians 7.25. We didn't just read it. You didn't miss it. It happens earlier in the chapter. And I'm telling you, if you want the Bible... To be an answer book, this right here is really unsettling. Because apparently there's a space in church not only for us to quote the Bible to one another, but when we encounter situations that we feel like the Bible doesn't directly address, we want to use the wisdom we have as being people of God to try to say, here's the best thing we know to do. And we may learn something in the future that helps us be even better at responding to this situation, but here's the best we know to do. So let's, let's start with what I'm certain Paul is saying and what Paul seems really certain about. And that is that for followers of Christ... 
the commonly used term, you know, safe sex, is not a medical term. It's a theological term. And it means sex that takes place within the spiritual safety of the covenant of marriage. That's safe sex. You're not supposed to have sex with someone who could lead you, leave you if you're bad at sex. That's not safe. Your relationship with someone shouldn't be built around sex. That's not wise. And it's really tricky because mostly we'd rather just tell people, especially the unmarried among us, you know, it's like Paul. I think we're all hoping, I just wish you wouldn't think about it or be interested in it and that'd be easier. Yeah, okay. Good luck with that. Right? It's, it's, it's tricky. Now, here's two stories I want to tell you. When Lauren and I got engaged, I was with my dad at the subway over by ACU. You know that subway? You picturing it? Okay, we're in there. It's a relatively small restaurant, and my father talks too loud all the time, all the time, all the time, and especially when he's saying things you don't want anyone to notice that he's talking about. And in the middle of his BLT or whatever it is, he says to me, hey, now that you and Lauren are engaged, I guess I want to ask you, have you done it yet? And I said, no, Dad. You told me my whole life not to do that. In fact, I remember you telling me, you're worth more than that. The girl you're dating's worth more than that. It's not worth it, son. And he's like, yeah, but you're, you're engaged now. And I know it's going to get a whole lot easier to come up with Christian-y sounding excuses for why now it's okay when it wasn't okay earlier. And I mean, the whole place, I, the sandwich artists up there are looking at us. And then it gets worse. Because he starts talking about his sex life with my mother. <laughs> right? And he says, hey, I just want you to know, now I, I'm about to get married. Okay? I'm not 14. I'm not 15. And I'm telling you this because I could have used this story when I was younger. But he didn't tell me this story because in church we kind of act like you just don't talk about this stuff. And you certainly don't admit to your 14-year-old that you had sex before you got married. Because then you're afraid if you tell them that story that they'll automatically think it's okay to go have sex before they get married. Are you following me on this? Okay, so he tells me, we, your mother and I were not Christians. So we were having sex before we got married. And I wasn't, I, I didn't go to church, but I felt bad after every time we had sex. I felt bad about how it made me feel. I felt bad about what I was doing, making, how you, I was making your mother feel about herself because we weren't in a committed relationship together. And I got to the point where every time we had sex, I felt shame and embarrassment. And I told myself that when we finally got married, when the preacher said those you know, magic words of you're now husband and wife, that those bad feelings would magically go away on our wedding night. Guess what happened after we had sex on our, our wedding night? We both felt embarrassed and ashamed because we had conditioned ourselves to feel that way. And son, I don't want that for you. I don't want any part of your sex life to include embarrassment and shame. Don't do that to yourself. Don't do that to Lauren. Don't do it. Man, I could have used that when I was younger. That makes sense to me. Doesn't that make sense to you? Right, but we, we don't want to talk about this stuff, so we don't. And then 
you know, Lauren and I were virgins when we got married, which means I have no idea if we're good at sex. And it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it worked. <laughs> But we don't have, we're not haunted by past people. Like, my only interest is being good at having sex with Lauren. That's it. I'm not interested in figuring out if I'm good at having sex, generally speaking. There's a freedom and a safety that comes. For, this is God's ideal for us. That you're not having to tell somebody stories from your past on your, but before you get married that, that make you feel horrible about yourself. or Look, and by the way, one of the complicating factors here is it's not always just your decision. You know, I looked it up this morning. Over one in three women in the U.S. will have some form of sexual abuse happen to them in their lifetime. Nearly one in four men. Right? So this is not, it's not something that's always just your decision. I understand that. And God doesn't want you to hurt that way. Like, God's ideal when it comes to sex is not some moral hurdle to prove that you're serious about, you know, keeping the rules. God's ideal is the dream, he ha- it's the, it's the dream every parent has, that their child will have the best possible life. And God wants us to have safe sex. I remember my dad telling me at one point, you know, you should feel comfortable enough with Lauren my dad talked an awful lot about this. I don't, I don't, now I'm thinking about it. I don't know. What, anyway, so he said, you, you know, there could be a, a situation where you're having so much, you're, you're just fun and you're connected and that intimacy is there. You might actually laugh during sex. I was mortified. Because the only version of sex I'd seen up to that point was we don't talk about it at church and Top Gun or whatever. <laughs> where a cheesy 80s song was going to play and my life was going to change. You don't laugh in a Hollywood movie in the middle of that. It'd be mortifying, right? But if it's about connecting on a human level, the way we're recreated, there's a joy that could bring laughter, right? There's a, there's a vulnerability where you're not trying to protect yourself from that other person because you're in covenant. Your performance should never be a part of your sex life with a person that you're sharing life with. That's what covenant means. The only thing holding you together is your sex life. You don't have much of a relationship. You know, I've had to talk to people who are living together before they get married, and they come and talk to a preacher about what they should do. Stop having sex, right? And how do you tell people who've already had sex together to stop having sex? This is one of the problems about how we talk about it at church, right? And I want to go to the next slide, Nate. The church, I think, has given up too much ground, and we have unknowingly agreed with people that, that sex is the one aspect of what someone does that gets to define all of who they are. And we are so nervous about the danger, explosive power of sex to wreck somebody's life, especially our children's lives, that it, it's an all-or-nothing conversation. You either are a virgin or you aren't one. By the way, what that sets us up to, with any other kind of sin, we use language of recovery. We don't talk like that about virginity. So you either are or you aren't. And and guess what? If you aren't one, why would you ever stop having sex? Once you've rung that bell, you can't unring it. So you just keep hiding it and you keep 
doing it and you keep making a longer list of sexual partners and things you've done that you can't forget that you're carrying with you and nobody at church has told you that if you've given your virginity away or if it's taken from you, God can give it back. Spiritually speaking, God can give it back. The church doesn't talk like that. So there's no way back. And I've told people who, are, who have been living together and they, they have a sexual relationship. If you truly love one another, you should be able to take that out of your relationship between now and your wedding and find out how much you really share in common that's not connected to that person being willing to have sex with you. And if you don't have enough built together as a relationship beyond that, you're going to have major problems in your marriage. You should cherish one another enough to refrain Do you love that person enough that if that, what, what happens if you get married to somebody and there's a horrible accident and you're not able to have a sexual relationship from that point forward? Does that negate your marriage vows? No, right? And, and again, the world talks like sex is the most important thing, that sex could make life worth living. And the church too often has come along and said, yeah, it, it can't make your life worth living as long as you have it with your spouse in a covenant relationship and it's going to change everything and it's going to be amazing and it's going to be, you know what it's going to be? It's going to be all it can be, which is one aspect of your relationship. And if you try to make your whole relationship built on that and built around that, it's going to fail. Your personal identity by God is designed to be more than your sexual activity. And too often, I feel like the church goes along with the world and we define people. I know sex can be a defining experience, but we define people by what has happened to them or what they've been a part of sexually as if that's big enough to completely define who they are to us. And the church should be the community in the world that says the only thing that gets to define all of who you are is your relationship with Christ. That's it. It's a, sex is an important aspect of who you are. It can never be all of who you are. This is so important. This is so crucial and central because we need to be able to speak truthfully about the possible damage that someone's doing to their own spiritual and emotional life by having unsafe sex, spiritually speaking, outside of covenant. Right? We need to be able to say, what are you doing to yourself? What, what are you doing to this other person? What, what kinds of, of regrets are you possibly creating that you're going to wrestle with for a long time and God's not going to give up on you getting to experience his ideal at some point, but you're going to have a lot, there's a long road here, a long road of recovery and healing, and you're going to have to partner not only with the Holy Spirit to be reborn and be made new, but you're going to have to partner with God's people to help get to a place where it's not something you feel like defines you. Look, brothers and sisters, I want my daughters to be virgins when they get married because I know the blessing that I got to experience because of that. But if it's taken from them or they make a bad choice and they give it away, I want them to be a part of a church that says, because of God, there's still a good future for you. That that's not all of who you are. To us, that's not, you can't make us see you that way. You know, I, 
I worry about sometimes that we just, because we, we act like it's all or nothing, we just, we drive people underground with their struggles. And here's the point. Like, let's go to the next slide, Nate. Look, what Paul's trying to do in this whole section is, is tell us we're called to the constant, unending struggle of holding on to God's ideals while also holding on to people who aren't yet living those ideals. That's church. And uh, let me show you what that looks like just in terms of, of a visual aid here. And I'm sorry to have to use me as a visual aid. So on one end, we're holding on to God's ideals. On the other end, we're holding on to people who aren't yet living God's ideals. What position does that put us in? What is the shape I'm standing in? It's above me if you need to cheat. It's got lights behind it. What is this shape? We're being crucified, right? It's brutal to keep doing this, to keep calling one another to God's ideal, not giving up on them, because that's what we tend to do, right? Isn't it, church? Don't we either use God's ideals and we kind of beat people up with it and we say we're done with you if you can't live up to God's ideals? Stop complicating things. Stop making things messy. We've got God's ideal over here. Everybody should have one sexual partner for their entire life in covenant. That's God's ideal. Okay, what are we going to do with all these people over here who aren't yet living that ideal? And what do we do with the fact that some people are on a second sexual partner because they lost their first spouse and they're now in a second marriage? Right? But, but God's working through that second new covenant to help bring healing to them. Where it's not some brutal, you know, haunted comparison game of am I better at this than another person they've been with and... But I think what we tend to do, if I'm going to be real brutal, uh, brutally honest here, is we hold on to the sex ideal and we beat people up with it. We let go of greed, power, selflessness, like all the other stuff that we're called to. We just don't talk about the ideals and we try to make each other feel comfortable that we're not even striving for them. That's not church. This is church. Paul could do it, and it was messy. Again, read 1 Corinthians 7 in one sitting. It's messy. He's going in circles, trying to do this, trying to strike this balance, having, having an internal wrestling match with himself. Look, I, I just want to say this. I know we can do this because we've done it before. And it's actually connected to another aspect of 1 Corinthians 7, and that is with the issue, the ongoing issue of divorce and remarriage. It's messy, isn't it? It's always messy. I talked to some people at, in our church community, people that you know. And as, as I talked to some people who are, are younger, and I said, what do you need from the church on this? They said, we need people to understand how confusing all this is for us. Well, part of the reason our young people are confused is we don't talk enough about it. The other thing they said is, you know, one of the, the people who I talked with had, had been raped and felt like that became her whole identity and that her only road to redemption was to try to marry the boyfriend who did that to her. Man, we got to talk about this stuff more. 
I know it's hard, and I know it's difficult, but nobody should think that's the only road to redemption after they've been sexually abused by somebody. But I also talk to to people who in our, our church family have gone through the brutal death of a marriage uh, and then how church people kind of reacted and treated them. And, and what I heard from, from the people I talked to, uh, every single one of them was, I wish people understood that there's no possible way to let someone outside of your marriage understand fully everything that's going wrong in your marriage and that every single divorce is unique. Now, here's what's challenging. I think we tend to take something that's super personal, not private, but personal like sex. We try to make institutional policies about it. Because we'd rather have our leaders make policies that we don't have to think about and wrestle with instead of having conversations with people in the, the unique situation they're in. But every single divorce I've ever, I've ever witnessed is unique. So here's the policy I'm suggesting, that we don't make policies but we commit ourselves to faithful conversations with people wherever they are. And like Paul, we wrestle with, okay, given where you are and what you're going through, what's the best possible way for you to be a disciple in the midst of this? Because what these folks told me was, instead of trying to get to know the actual, pulling for our marriage, and trying, one of them said, if there's 1% chance to fight for that marriage, don't pick a side and then fight against one of us. Fight for our marriage. Man, that's helpful. Right? That's helpful wisdom. Uh, but, but the reality is, look, we didn't really start dealing with divorce and remarriage until elders' daughters started getting divorced. And if you're willing to get into the messiness of, of the specific situation for your own kid, shouldn't you love everybody's kid that way? I'm sorry. I wish we could be really certain. I, I wish we could say this is how it's going to be, that we're all, we're all going to get to experience and live out God's ideal so we don't have to talk about what happens when we don't. But the reality is church should be the one place where if you feel like your sexual experiences completely define who you are, church should be the place where we say you're so much more than that. So much more than that. And if you need help, we'll get you help. And if we need to, to hook you up with the right person to talk to, we'll do that. Because all of us are constantly in a wrestling match to figure out how we're going to try more and more to experience what God wants for us and the ways that we we don't yet get to, to taste that. And I need you to hear this. If you're in this room and you are in your past or your present, you have, have been involved in sexual behavior and activity or, or an event's happened to you and it is, it's happening outside of the covenant of marriage and it's hurting you, and it's damaging you, and even if you don't know, I just need you to hear me say this. God can make you a new person, and we want to help. But don't keep doing things that are making your future harder to heal from, to heal into, right? Don't, don't, Look, sometimes I worry that people think if I've already messed up, if I keep repeating the mistake, it'll make that first time mean less, That's not how sex works. You can't empty it of its spiritual aspects. You don't just have a body, you are one. You don't just have a soul, you are one. Paul says, look, sex is is one of the places you experience the connection between your body and your soul. There is a spiritual aspect of sex that you can't deny. I don't care how much you try try to. You are 
intimately connected to that person in a way that you can't simply just walk away from cleanly. It, doesn't, it just doesn't happen. But God can resurrect you. We want to be a church where that happens. Please, please help us be a church that holds lovingly onto God's ideals and holds lovingly onto the people who aren't yet living those ideals. And we say you're welcome here. You're welcome here. We're going to sing together. Uh, And as we do, my hope and my prayer is that God shows us this week. I'm not going to apply it in a very specific way because I I can't do that now after I made fun of it. I, I just hope that we're able to, as God's people, keep falling in love with the life that Jesus makes possible and inviting people into that life who who are so far away from it, they, they can't even believe it's possible for them. Let's, let's hold on to both with everything we have. It's what we were made for. Let's stand together and sing.